Welcome to Vakara's live reading of A Holiday Romance in Four Parts by Charles Dickens. Tonight, we will read parts one and two. You can join us tomorrow, same time, same place, for parts three and four. This event was made possible by San Jose State University's School of Information, the Community Virtual Library, and the Dickens Project. And we would like to thank them for this opportunity. Vakara is a student and alumni group at the iSchool and represents the school's presence in virtual worlds. Each semester we host events like this one. For more information about Vakara and our events, please visit the Vakara blog. This event will also be recorded. We ask the audience to mute their microphones now and to keep mics muted for the duration of the performance. Instead, we encourage you to use the chat to interact. Our readers today are Elise Donovan Jones, Bethany Winslow, Marie Vans, Valerie Hill, and myself. I'm Pat Franks, Vicaris faculty advisor and the coordinator for the iSchool's master's degree in archives and records administration. Elise graduated from the iSchool with her MLIS in 2018. She serves as the community virtual library's assistant director. Bethany is an instructional designer at eCampus at SJSU. She's also a volunteer with the Community Virtual Library. Marie graduated from the iSchool with her MLIS in 2016. She's a senior research scientist for HP Labs, where she does research in document analytics, virtual reality, and she is teaching a course at SJSU on using VR as a learning platform. Val is the director of the Community Virtual Library, and her research focuses on the intersection of literacy and digital culture. She earned her PhD in information science in 2012. Now, on to the main event. Part one. Introductory Romance from the Pen of William Tinkling, Esquire, Aged Eight. This beginning part is not made out of anybody's head, you know. It's real. You must believe this beginning part more than what comes after, else you won't understand how what comes after came to be written. You must believe it all, but you must believe this most, please. I am the editor of it. Rob Bob Redforth, he's my cousin and shaking the table on purpose, wanted to be the editor of it. But I said he shouldn't because he couldn't. He has no idea of being an editor. Nettie Ashford is my bride. We were married in the right-hand closet in the corner of the dancing school, where first we met with a ring, a green one, from Wilkingwater's toy shop. I owed for it out of my pocket money. 
When the rapturous ceremony was over, we all four went up the lane and let off a cannon brought loaded in Bob Redworth's waistcoat pocket to announce our neutrals. It flew right up when it went off and turned over. Next day, Lieutenant Colonel Robin Redforth was united with similar ceremonies to Alice Rainbird. This time, the cannon burst with a most terrific explosion and made a puppy bark. My peerless bride was at the period of which we now treat in captivity at Miss Grimmer's. Drowvy and Grimmer is the partnership, and opinion is divided, which is the greatest beast. The lovely bride of the colonel was also immured in the dungeons of the same establishment. A vow was entered into between the colonel and myself that we would cut them out on the following Wednesday when walking two and two. Under the desperate circumstances of the case, the active brain of the colonel combining with his lawless pursuit, he is a pirate, suggested an attack with fireworks. This, however, for motives of humanity, was abandoned as too expensive. Lightly armed with a paper knife buttoned up under his jacket and waving the dreaded black flag at the end of a cane, the colonel took command of me at 2 p.m. on the eventful and appointed day. He had drawn out a plan of attack on a piece of paper, which was rolled up around a hoop stick. He showed it to me. My position and my full-length portrait, but my wheelers don't stick out horizontal, was behind a corner lamppost with written orders to remain there till I should see Miss Drowvy fall. The Drowvy, who was to fall, was the one in spectacles, not the one with the large lavender bonnet. At that signal, I was to rush forth, seize my bride, and fight my way to the lane. There was a junction would be effected between myself and the colonel, and putting our brides between us, between ourselves and the Paulings, we were to conquer or die. The enemy appeared, approached, waving his black flag. The colonel attacked. Confusion ensued. Anxiously, I, I awaited my signal, but my signal came not. So far from falling, the hated Drowvy in spectacles appeared to me to have muffled the colonel's head in his outlawed banner and to be pitching him in, into him with a parasol. The one in the lavender bonnet also performed prodigious prodigies of valor with her fists on his back. Seeing that was all for the moment lost, I, f I fought my desperate way hand to hand to the lane. Through the taking the back road, I was so fortunate as to meet nobody and arrived there uninterrupted. It seemed an age ere the colonel joined me. He had been to the jobbing tailors to be sewn up in several places and attributed our defeat to the refusal of the detested Drowvy to fall. Finding her so obstinate, he had to say to her, Die, recreant! But had found her no more open to reason on that point than the other. My blooming bride appeared, accompanied by the colonel's bride at the dancing school next day. What? Was her face averted from me? Ha! Even so. With a look of scorn, she put into my hand a bit of paper and took another partner. On the paper was penciled, Heavens, can I write the word? Is my husband a cow? 
In the first bewilderment of my heated brain, I tried to think what slanderer could have traced my family to the ignoble animal mentioned above. Balin were my endeavors. At the end of that dance, I whispered the colonel to come into the cloakroom, and I showed him the note. There is a syllable wanting, said he with a gloomy brow. Ha! What syllable was my inquiry? She asks, can she write the word? And no, you see, she couldn't, said the colonel, pointing out the passage. And the word was, said I, cow, cow, coward, hissed the pirate colonel in my ear and gave me back the note. Feeling that I must forever tread the earth a branded boy, per person I mean, or that I must clear up my honor, I demanded to be tried by a court-martial. The colonel admitted my right to be tried. Some difficulty was found in composing the courts on account of the emperor of France's aunt refusing to let him come out. He was to be the president. There, yet we had appointed a substitute. He made his escape over the back wall and stood among us a free monarch. The court was held on the grass by the pond. I recognized in a certain admiral among my judges my deadliest foe. A coconut had given rise to language that I could not brook, but confiding in my innocence and also in the knowledge that the president of the United States, who sat next to him, owed me a knife, I braced myself for the ordeal. It was a solemn spectacle, that court. Two executioners with pinafores reversed led me in. Under the shade of an umbrella, I perceived my bride, supported by the bride of the pirate colonel. The president, having reproved a little female ensign for tittering as a matter of, uh, on a matter of life or death, called upon me to plead. Coward or no coward, guilty or not guilty. I pleaded in a firm tone, no coward and not guilty. The little female ensign being again reproved by the president for misconduct, mutinied, left the court and threw stones. My implacable enemy, the admiral, conducted the case against me. The colonel's bride was called to prove that I had remained behind the corner lamppost during the engagement. I might have been spared the anguish of my own bride's being also made a witness to the same point, but the admiral knew where to wound me. Be still, my soul, no matter. The colonel was then brought forward with his evidence. It was for this point that I had saved myself up as the turning point of my case. Shaking myself free of my guards who had no business to hold me, the stupids, unless I was found guilty, I asked the colonel what he considered the first duty of a soldier. Ere he could reply, the president of the United States rose and informed the court that my foe, the admiral, had suggested bravery and that prompting a witness wasn't fair. The president of the court immediately ordered the admiral's mouth to be filled with leaves and tied up with string. I had the satisfaction of seeing the sentence carried into effect before the proceedings went further. I then took a paper from my trousers pocket and asked, what do you consider, Colonel Redford, the first duty of a soldier? Is it obedience? It is. Is that paper, please, to look at in your hand? It is. Is it a military sketch? It is. 
of an engagement? Quite so. Of the late engagement? Of the late engagement. Please to describe it and then hand it to the president of the court. From that triumphant moment, my sufferings and my dangers were at an end. The court rose up and jumped on discovering that I had strictly obeyed orders. My foe, the admiral, who though muzzled was malignant yet, contrived to suggest that I was dishonored by having quitted the field. But the colonel himself had done as much and gave his opinion upon his word and honor as a pirate that when all was lost, the field might be quitted without disgrace. I was going to be found no coward and not guilty, and my blooming bride was going to be publicly restored to my arms in a procession when an unlooked-for event disturbed the general rejoicing. This was no other than the Emperor of France's aunt catching hold of his hair. The proceedings abruptly terminated and the court tumultuously dissolved. It was when the shades of the next evening, but one, were beginning to fall, ere yet the silver beams of Luna touched the earth, that four forms might have been described slowly advancing toward the weeping willow on the borders of the pond, and now deserted scene of the day before yesterday's agonies and triumphs. On a nearer approach and by a practiced eye, these might have been identified as the forms of the pirate colonel with his bride and of the day before yesterday's gallant prisoner with his bride. On the beauteous faces of the nymphs dejection sat enthroned. All four reclined under the willow for some minutes without speaking, till at length the bride of the colonel poutingly observed. It's of no use pretending anymore. We had better give it up. Ha! exclaimed the pirate. Pretending? Don't go on like that. You worry me, returned his lovely bride. The lovely bride of Tinkling echoed the incredible declaration. The two warriors exchanged stony glances. If, said the bride of the pirate colonel, Grown-up people won't do what they ought to do and will put us out. What comes of our pretending? We only get into scrapes, said the bride of Tinkling. You know very well, pursued the colonel's bride, that Miss Drowvey wouldn't fall. You complained of it yourself, and you know how disgracefully the court-martial ended. As to our marriage... Would my people acknowledge it at home? Or would my people acknowledge ours? Said the bride of Tinkling. Again, the two warriors exchanged stony glances. If you knocked at the door and claimed me after you were told to go away, said the colonel's bride, you would only have your hair pulled or your ears or your nose. If you persisted in ringing at the bell and claiming me, said the bride of Tinkling to that gentleman, you would have things dropped on your head from the window over the handle, or you would be played upon by the garden engine. And at your own homes, resumed the bride of the colonel. It would be just as bad. You would be sent to bed or something equally undignified. Again, 
how would you support us? The pirate colonel replied in a courageous voice. By rapine! But his bride retorted. Suppose the grown-up people wouldn't be rapined. Then they should pay the penalty in blood. But suppose they should object and wouldn't pay the penalty in blood or anything else. A mournful silence ensued. Then do you no longer love me, Alice? Let forth! I am ever thine! Returned his bride. Then do you no longer love me, Nettie? Asked the present writer. Tinkling, I am ever thine. Returned my bride. We all four embraced. Let me not be misunderstood by the giddy. The colonel embraced his own bride, and I embraced mine. But two times, two make four. Nettie and I have been considering our position. The grown-up people are too strong for us. They make us ridiculous. Besides, they have changed the times. William Tinkling's baby brother was christened yesterday. What took place? Was any king present? Answer, William. I said no, unless disguised as Great Uncle Chopper. Any queen? There had been no queen that I knew of at our house. There might have been one in the kitchen, but I didn't think so, or the servants would have mentioned it. Any fairies? None that were visible. We had an idea among us, I think, said Alice with a melancholy smile. We four, that Miss Grimmer would prove to be the wicked fairy and would come in at the christening with her crutch stick and give the child a bad gift. Was there anything of that sort? Answer, William. I said that Ma had said afterwards, and so she had, that Great Uncle Chopper's gift was a shabby one, but she hadn't called, she hadn't said it a bad one. She called it shabby. Electrotyped, secondhand, and below his income. It must be the grown-up people who have changed all this. We couldn't have changed it if we had, had been so inclined, and we never should have been. Or perhaps Miss Grimmer is a wicked fairy after all, and won't act up to it because the grown-up people have persuaded her not to. Either way, they would make us ridiculous if we told them what we expected. Tyrants muttered the pirate colonel. Nay, my Redforth, say not so. Call not names, my Redforth, or they will surely apply to Pa. Let him. I do not care. Who's he? Tinkling here undertook the perilous task of remonstrating with his lawless friend who consented to withdraw the moody expressions above quoted. What remains for us to do? Alice went on in her mild, wise way. We must educate. We must pretend in a new manner. We must wait. The colonel clenched his teeth, four out in front and a piece of another, and that he had been twice dragged to the door of a dentist despot, but he had escaped from his guards. How educate? How pretend in a new manner? How wait? Educate the grown-up people. We part tonight. Yes, Redforth. For the colonel tucked up his cuffs. Part tonight. Let us, in these next holidays, now going to begin, throw our thoughts into something educational for the grown-up people, hinting to them how things ought to be. 
Let us veil our meaning under a mask of romance. You and I and Nettie, William Tinkling, being the plainest and quickest writer, shall copy out. Is it agreed? I don't mind. How about pretending? We will pretend that we are children. Not that that we are those grown-up people who won't help us help us out as they ought, and who understand us badly. The colonel, still much dissatisfied, growled. How about waiting? We will wait, answered little Alice, taking Nettie's hand in hers, and looked up to the sky. We will wait ever constant and true, till the times have got so changed that everything helps us out, and nothing makes us ridiculous, and the fairies have come back. We will wait ever constant and true, till we are 80, 90, or 100, and then the fairies will send us children, and we will help them out, poor pretty little creatures, if they pretend ever so much. So we will, dear, said Nettie Ashford, taking her round the waist with both arms and kissing her. And now, if my husband will go and buy some cherries for us, I have got some money. In the friendliest manner, I invited the colonel to go with me, but he so far forgot himself as to acknowledge the invitation by kicking out behind and then lying down on his stomach on the grass, pulling it up and chewing it. When I came back, however, Alice had nearly brought him out of his vexation and was soothing him by telling him how soon we should all be ninety. As we sat under the willow tree and ate the cherries, fair for Alice brought them out, shared them. We played at being 90. Nettie complained that she had a bone in her old back and it made her hobble. And Alice sang a song in an old woman's way. But it was a very, it was very pretty. And we were all merry. At least, I don't know about merry exactly, but all comfortable. There was a most tremendous lot of cherries and Alice always had with her some neat little bag or box or case to hold things. In it that night was a tiny wine glass, so Alice and Nettie said that they would make some cherry wine to drink our love at parting. Each of us had a glass full, and it was delicious, and each of us drank the toast. The colonel drank his wine last, and it got into my head directly, and it got into his directly. Anyhow, his eyes rolled immediately after he had turned the glass upside down, and he took me on one side and proposed in a hoarse whisper that we should... Cut him out still. How do you mean? I asked my lawless friend. Cut our brides out, and then cut our way, without going down a single turning. Bang! The Spanish maid. We might have tried it, though I didn't think it would answer. Only we looked around and saw that there was nothing but moonlight under the willow tree, and that our pretty, pretty wives were gone. We burst out crying. The colonel gave in second and came to first, but he, he gave in strong. We were ashamed of our red eyes and hung about for a half an hour to whiten them. Likewise, a piece of chalk round the rim... I do in the colonel's and he mine, but afterwards found in the bedroom looking glass not natural, besides inflammation. Our conversation turned on being 90. The colonel told me he had a pair of boots that wanted soling and healing, but he thought it hardly worthwhile to mention it to his father, as he himself should soon be 90, when he thought shoes would be more convenient. 
The colonel also told me, with his hand upon his hip, that he felt himself already getting on in life and turning rheumatic, and I told him the same. And when they said at our house at supper, they are always bothering about something, that I stooped, I felt so glad. This is the end of the beginning part, that you were told to believe most. Part two. Romance from the pen of Miss Alice Rainbird, aged seven. There was once a king, and he had a queen, and he was the manliest of his sex, and she was the loveliest of hers. The king was, in his private profession, under government. The queen's father had been a medical man out of town. They had 19 children and were always having more. 17 of these children took care of the baby, and a and Alicia, the eldest, took care of them all. Their ages varied from seven years to seven months. Let us now resume our story. One day, the king was going to the office when he stopped at the fishmongers to buy a pound and a half of salmon, not too near the tail, which the queen, who was a careful housekeeper, had requested him to send home. Mr. Pickles, the fishmonger, said, Certainly, sir. Is there any other article? Good morning. The king went on towards the office in a melancholy mood, for quarter day was such a long way off, and several of the dear children were growing out of their clothes. He had not proceeded far when Mr. Pickles's errand boy came running after him and said, Sir, you didn't notice the old lady in our shop. What old lady? inquired the king. I saw none. Now, the king had not seen any old lady because this, o this old lady had been invisible to him, though visible to Mr. Pickles's boy, probably because he messed and splashed the water about to that degree and flopped the pairs of soles down in that violent manner that, if she had not been visible to him, he would have spoiled her clothes. Just then, the old lady came trotting up. She was dressed in a shot silk of the richest quality, smelling of dried lavender. King Watkins the first, I believe, said the old lady. Watkins is my name. Papa, if I am not mistaken, of the beautiful Princess Alicia? And of 18 other darlings. Listen, you are going to the office. It instantly flashed upon the king that she must be a fairy. Or how could she know that? You are right, said the old lady, answering his thoughts. I am the good fairy, Grand Marina. Attend. When you return home to dinner, politely invite the Princess Alicia to have some of the salmon you bought just now. It may disagree with her. The old lady became so very angry at this absurd idea that the king was quite alarmed and humbly begged her her pardon. We hear a great deal too much about this thing disagreeing and that thing disagreeing, said the old lady with the greatest contempt it was possible to express. Don't be greedy. I think you want it all for yourself. The king hung his head under his reproof and said he wouldn't talk about things disagreeing anymore. Be good then, said the fairy Grand Marina. And don't, 
When the beautiful Alicia consents to partake of the salmon, as I think she will, you will find she will leave a fish bone on her plate. Tell her to dry it and to rub it and to polish it till it shines like mother of pearl and to take care of it as a present from me. Is that all? Don't be impatient, sir. Returned the fairy Grand Marina, scolding him severely. Don't catch people short before they have done speaking. Just the way with you grown-up persons, you are always doing it. The king again hung his head and said he wouldn't do it anymore. Do so anymore. Be good then, and don't. Tell the Princess Alicia with my love that the fishbone is a magic present, which can only be used once, but that it will bring her that once, whatever she wishes for, provided she wishes for it at the right time. That is the message. Take care of it. The king was beginning. Might I ask the reason? When the fairy became absolutely furious. Will you be good, sir? She exclaimed, stamping her foot on the ground. The reason for this and the reason for that, indeed. You are always wanting the reason. No reason. There. Hoity-toity me. I am sick of your grown-up reasons. The king was extremely frightened by the old ladies flying into such a passion and said he was very sorry to have offended her and he wouldn't ask for reasons anymore. Be good then, and don't. And with those words, Grand Marina vanished and the king went on and on and on till he came to the office, where he wrote and wrote and wrote till it was time to go home again. Then he politely invited the Princess Alicia, as the fairy had directed him to, partake of the salmon. And when she had enjoyed it very much, he saw the fish bone on her plate, as the fairy had told him he would, and he delivered the fairy's message, and the princess Alicia took care to dry the bone, and to rub it, and to polish it, until it shone like mother of pearl. And so, when the queen was going to get up in the morning, she said... Oh, dear me, dear me, my head, my head. And then she fainted away. The Princess Alicia, who happened to be looking in at the chamber door, asking about breakfast, was very much alarmed when she saw her royal mama in this state, and she rang the bell for Peggy, which was the name of the Lord Chamberlain. But remembering where the smelling bottle was, she climbed on a chair and got it. And after that, she climbed on another chair by the bedside and held the smelling bottle to the queen's nose. And after that, she jumped down and got some water. And after that, she jumped up again and wetted the queen's forehead. And in short, when the Lord Chamberlain came in, that dear old woman said to the little princess, What a trot you are. I couldn't have done it better myself. But that was not the worst of the good queen's illness. Oh, no. She was very ill indeed for a long time. The Princess Alicia kept the 17 young princes and princesses quiet and dressed and undressed and danced the baby and made the kettle boil and heated the soup and swept the hearth and poured out the medicine and nursed the queen and did all that ever she could and was as busy, busy, busy as busy could be. For there were not many servants at the palace for three reasons. Because the king was short of money. Because in 
because a rise in his office never seemed to come, and because quarter day was so far off that it looked almost as far off and as little as one of the stars. But on the morning when the queen fainted away, there was the mag- where was the magic fishbone? Why, there it was, in the Princess Alicia's pocket. She had almost taken it out to bring the queen to life again when she put it back and looked for the smelling bottle. After the queen had come out of her swoon that morning and was dozing, the Princess Alicia hurried upstairs to tell a most particular secret to a most particularly confidential friend of hers who was a duchess. People did not suppose her to be a doll, but she was really a duchess, though nobody knew it except the princess. This most particular secret was the secret about the magic fishbone, the history of which was well known to the duchess because the princess told her everything. The princess kneeled down by the bed on which the duchess was lying, full-dressed and wide awake, and whispered the secret to her. The duchess smiled and nodded. People might have supposed that she never smiled and nodded, but she often did, though nobody knew it except the princess. Then the Princess Alicia hurried downstairs again to keep watch in the Queen's room. She often kept watch by herself in the Queen's room. But every evening while the illness lasted, she sat there watching with the King. And every evening the King sat looking at her with a cross look, wondering why she never brought out that magic fishbone. As often as she noticed this, she ran upstairs, whispered the secret to the Duchess over again, and said to the Duchess beside, They think we children never have a reason or a meaning. And the Duchess, though the most fashionable Duchess that ever was heard of, winked her eye. Alicia, said the King one evening when she wished him good night. Yes, Papa? What has become of the magic fishbone? In my pocket, Papa. I thought you had lost it. Oh, no, Papa. Or forgotten it? No, indeed, Papa. And so, another time, the dreadful little snapping pug dog next door made a rush at one of the young princes as he stood on the steps coming home from school and terrified him out of his wits. And he put his hand through a pane of glass and bled, bled, bled. When the 17 other young princes, princes and princesses saw him bleed, 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 they were too terrified out of their wits and screamed themselves back in their 17 faces all at once. But the Princess Alicia put her hands over all their 17 mouths, one after the other, and persuaded them to be quiet because of the sick queen. And then she put the wounded prince's hand in a basin of fresh cold water while they stared with their twice 17 or 34, put down four and carry three eyes. And then she looked at the hands for bits of glass and there were fortunately no bits of glass there. And then she said to two chubby-legged princes who were sturdy though small, Bring me in the royal rag bag. I must snip and stitch and cut and contrive. So these two young princes 
tugged at the royal rag bag and lugged it in. And Princess Alicia sat down on the floor with a large pair of scissors and a needle and thread and snipped and stitched and cut and contrived and made a bandage and put it on and made it fit it fit and it fitted beautifully. And so when it was all done, she saw the king, her papa, looking on by the door. Alicia? Yes, Papa. What have you been doing? Snipping, stitching, cutting, and contriving, Papa. Where is the magic fishbone? In my pocket, Papa. Oh, I thought you had lost it. Oh, no, Papa. Or forgotten it? No, indeed, Papa. After that, she ran upstairs to the Duchess and told her what had passed and told her the secret over again. And the Duchess shook her flaxen curls and laughed her ro- with her lo- rosy lips. Well, so another time the baby fell under the grate and the 17 young princes and princesses were used to it for they were almost always falling under the grate or down the stairs. But the baby was not used to it yet, and it gave him a swelled face and a black eye. The way the poor little darling came to tumble was that he was out of the Princess Alicia's lap, just as she was sitting, in a great coarse apron that quite smothered her in front of the kitchen fire, beginning to peel the turnips for the broth for dinner. And the way she came to be doing that was that the king's cook had run away that morning with her own true love, who was a very tall but very tipsy soldier. Then the 17 young princes and princesses who cried at everything that happened, cried and roared. But Princess Alicia, who couldn't help crying a little herself, quietly called to them to be still on account of not throwing back the queen upstairs, who was still getting well, and said, Hold your tongues, you wicked little monkeys, every one of you, while I examine baby. Then she examined baby and found that he hadn't broken anything, and she held cold iron to his poor dear eye and smoothed his poor dear face and he presently fell asleep in her arms then she said to the 17 princes and princesses i am afraid to let him down yet lest he should wake and feel pain be good and you shall all be cooks they jumped for joy when they heard that and began making themselves cook's caps out of old newspapers So to one she gave the salt box, and to one she gave the barley, and to one she gave the herbs, and to one she gave the turnips, and to one she gave the carrots, and to one she gave the onions, and to one she gave the spice box, till they were all cooks and all running about at work, she sitting in the middle, smothered in the great coarse apron, nursing baby. By and by the broth was done, and the baby woke up smiling like an angel and was trusted to the sedatest princess to hold while the other princes and princesses were squeezed into a far off corner to look at the princess Alicia turning out the saucepan full of broth fear as they were always getting into trouble they should get splashed and scalded 
When the broth came tumbling out, steaming beautifully and smelling like a nosegay good to eat, they clapped their hands. That made the baby clap his hands, and that, and his looking as if he had a comic toothache, made all the princes and princesses laugh. So the princess Alicia said, Laugh and be good, and after dinner, we will make him a nest on the floor in a corner, and he shall sit in his nest and see a dance of 18 cooks. That delighted the young princes and princesses, and they ate up all the broth and washed up the plates and dishes and cleared away and pushed the table into a corner. And then they in their cook's caps and the princess Alicia in the smothering coarse apron that belonged to the cook that had run away with her own true love that was very tall but very tipsy soldier danced a dance of 18 cooks before the angelic baby who forgot his swelled face and his black eye and crowed with joy. And so then, once more, the princess Alicia saw King Watkins I, her father, standing in the doorway looking on, and he said, What have you been doing, Alicia? Cooking and contriving, Papa. What else have you been doing, Alicia? Keeping the children light-hearted, Papa. Where is the magic fishbone, Alicia? In my pocket, Papa. I thought you had lost it. Oh, no, Papa. Or forgotten it? No, indeed, Papa. The king then sighed so heavily and seemed so low-spirited and sat down so miserably, leaning his head upon his hand and his elbow upon the kitchen table, pushed away in the corner, that the seventeen princes and princesses crept softly out of the kitchen and left him alone with the princess Alicia and the angelic baby. What is the matter, Papa? I am dreadfully poor, my child. Have you no money at all, Papa? None, my child. Is there no way of getting any, Papa? No way. I've tried very hard, and I have tried all ways. When she heard those last words, the Princess Alicia began to put her hand into the pocket where she kept the magic fish bone. Papa... When we have tried very hard and tried all ways, we must have done our very, very best. No doubt, Alicia. When we have done our very, very best, Papa, and that is not enough, then I think the right time must have come for asking help of others. This was the very secret connected with the magic fishbone, which she had found out for herself from the good fairy Grand Marina's words, and which she had so often whispered to her beautiful and fashionable friend, the Duchess. So she took out of her pocket the magic fishbone that had been dried and rubbed and polished till it shone like mother of pearl. She gave it one little kiss and wished it was quarter day. And immediately, it was quarter day. The king's quarter salary came rattling down the chimney and bounced into the middle of the floor. This is not half of what happened. No, not a quarter. For immediately afterwards, the good fairy Grand Marina came riding in, 
in a carriage and four peacocks with Mr. Pickles's boy up behind, dressed in silver and gold, with a cocked hat, powdered hair, pink silk stockings, a jeweled cane, and a nosegay. Down jumped Mr. Pickles's boy with his cocked hat in his hand and wonderfully polite, being entirely changed by enchantment, and handed Grand Marina out. And there she stood in her rich, shot silk smelling of dried lavender, fanning herself with a sparkling fan. Alicia, my dear, said this charming old fairy. How do you do? I hope I see you pretty well. Give me a kiss. The Princess Alicia embraced her, and then Grand Marina turned to the king and said rather sharply, Are you good? The king said he hoped so. I suppose you know the reason now why my goddaughter here, kissing the princess again, did not apply to the fishbone sooner. The king made a shy bow. Ah, but you didn't then. The king made a shyer bow. Any more reasons to ask for? The king said no. He was very sorry. Be good then, and live happy ever afterwards. Then Grand Marina waved her fan, and the queen became in most splendidly dressed. And the 17 young princesses, princes and princesses no longer grown out of their clothes came in newly fitted from top to toe with tucks and everything to admit of its being let out after that the fairy tapped the princess alicia with her fan and the smothering coarse apron flew away and she appeared exquisitely dressed like a little bride with a wreath of orange flowers and a silver veil after that, the kitchen dresser changed of itself into a wardrobe made of beautiful woods and gold and looking glass, which was full of dresses of all sorts, all for her and all exactly fitting her. After that, the angelic baby came in running alone with his face and eye not a bit the worst, but much the better. Then Grand Marina begged to be introduced to the Duchess, and then the Dutch and when the Duchess was brought down, many compliments passed between them. A little whispering took place between the fairy and the Duchess, and then the fairy said out loud, "Yes, I thought she would have told you." Grand Marina then turned to the king and queen and said, "We are going in search of Prince Certain Personial." The pleasure of your company is requested at church in half an hour precisely. So she and the Princess Alicia got into the carriage, and Mr. Pickles's boy handed in the Duchess, who sat by herself on the opposite seat. And then Mr. Pickles's boy put up the steps and got up behind, and the, pe the peacocks flew away with their tails behind. Prince Certain Personio was sitting by himself eating barley sugar and waiting to be 90. He saw the peacocks, followed by the carriage, coming in, coming in at the window. It immediately occurred to him that something uncommon was going to happen. Prince, said Grand Marina, I bring you your bride. The moment the fairy said those words, 
Prince certain personio's face left off being sticky and his jacket and corduroys changed into peach bloom velvet and his hair curled and a cap and a feather flew in like a bird and settled on his head. He got into the carriage by the fairy's invitation and there he renewed his acquaintance with the duchess whom he had seen before. In the church were the prince's relations and friends, and the princess Alicia's relations and friends, and the 17 princes and princesses, and the baby, and a crowd of neighbors. The marriage was beautiful beyond expression. The duchess was bridemaid and beheld the ceremony from the pulpit, where she was supported by the cushion by, of the desk. Grand Marina gave a magnificent wedding feast afterwards, and in which there was everything and more to eat, and everything and more to drink. The wedding cake was del del delicately ornamented with white satin ribbons, frosted silver, and white lilies. It was 42 yards round. When Grand Marina had drunk her love to the young couple, and Prince Certain Personio had made a speech, and everybody had cried, hip, hip, hurrah, Grand Marina announced to the king and queen that in future there would be eight quarter days in every year, except in leap year, then there would be ten. Then she turned to Certain Personio and Alicia and said, My dears, you will have 35 children, and they will all be good and beautiful. 17 of your children will be boys, and 18 will be girls. The hair of the whole of your children will curl naturally. They will never have the measles, and will have recovered from the whooping cough before being born. On hearing such good news, everybody cried out again, it only remains, said Grand Marina in conclusion, to make an end of the fishbone. So she took it from the hand of Princess Alicia, and it instantly flew down the throat of the dreadful little snapping pug dog next door and choked him, and he expired in convulsions. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for attending this reading of a holiday romance in four parts. Parts one and two by Charles Dickens. Let's give a hand to our readers. And please also give a hand to our technicians behind the scenes who made this possible. Please return to the Dickens Project throughout December for its many other events. Be sure to join us tomorrow at 5 p.m. SLT as we finish this story with parts three and four.